And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Red alert! All hands to battle stations! Engage! Captain Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting. No redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to Earth. Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, without destroying We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Welcome to Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 58. This is the Next Generation edition, the 1701D. D. D episode. I am Chris Honeywell, and that charming voice you heard was Scott Gardner. D. <laughs> hey. How's hi it going? There. Hi there, ho there. <laughs> um... I'm doing pretty good, actually. I'm looking forward to talking about this one, because I kind of dig this one, despite the fact that it's a Jordy LaForge episode. I think this one's actually pretty decent. I'm curious. Oh, really? I'm I, didn't, gonna... I, did, I know you ha- I, I know there's grudges against Deanna Troy and and um, Wesley Crusher, but I didn't know that you were not fond of of uh, Jordy LaForge-centric episodes. You know what's, what's really... It's funny when I think about it, that for as much as I like this show, there sure are a good portion of the cast that I just don't care for. Like, if they, you know, if they just suddenly had, like, phasered half the people in the show, I, I honestly wouldn't have minded all that much, because it's really, <laughs> there's only key characters I really latch on to with this. It's like, well, Wesley, Deanna, Jordy, all of them are completely expendable so far as I'm concerned, so. See, Jordy, I was... I was getting ready not to I really when I heard they cast LeVar Burton and I remember and I was so young when I saw Roots but I remember it being really intense Ruts. you know Roots Roots <laughs> and uh and I remember him being really good in that you know he was like the sort of you know standout actor in that but then reading Rainbow happened and 
I don't even know why I would end up watching, seeing Reading Rainbow, probably only for like a few minutes at a time, but I just hated the personality that he took mm-hmm. in that, and I associated it with his actual personality, you know? So I was just like, oh, geez, we're going to get high boys and girls. <laughs> now we're going to read a story about outer space. What do you think of that? I love outer space. I just hate that baby talk so, sort of. It's not right. really baby talk. It's like little kid talk, fake little kid talk. So, but I have to say, like, immediately I was like, okay, okay, I can totally see this character. And early on in the first season totally was bought into his character and he's a really good actor you know so his character is a little bland in places as it as it gets um you know especially before it you know any character development happens with it or anything is pretty bland but he he's does a good job with it this this episode really put some put some meat on his bones i thought as a character one thing i i do like about jordy is i i like that he's to a certain degree he's kind of the every well not so much the every man is that he's he's plain spoken about things he, he doesn't stand on a lot of ceremony or, or protocol because there will be a number of times where they'll call him down in engineering or something and he'll be like, well, I'm working on it. You know, and, you know, I'll, you know, I'll be right with you. Well, it's going to take me 20 more minutes, you know, that He's sort a of thing. So he, He's an engineer. So he doesn't stand on ceremony as much and, and that. And I like that. And to a certain degree, there's times when it, it almost sounds borderline. Um, insubordinate or something like that but it's just him just being plain spoken about things i like that well scotty was sort of like that too right yeah it gives him something in common with scotty with without him being you know being like scotty you know right so i i always i always thought that was and you know he also really got in good with number one you know he and number one really get get along well so that probably makes him a little looser you know, then, and it's also the the new Starfleet is a little more, you know, civilian, too. So maybe he can get away with that a little easier, <clears throat> right? Or it's just his his personality. But yeah, he's. Besides, I think they wanted Wesley to be the stand-in for like the the nerd viewer watching Next Generation. But I think the average nerd viewer watching Star Trek at that point was a little older, so I think Jordy became that character. Yeah, you to know, a certain extent. As yeah. in last episode, we found out he's not very good with girls, and you know he's really good with engines, and but but not really good with girls, and so so yeah, he be, he sort of became the stand-in for, and you know, and that that would be a great. I, I could see a lot of like Star Trek fans sort of wanting would rather have like if they had a chance to go onto the Enterprise I would almost rather be a Geordi LaForge than like a Riker or a Picard or something like that you know right somebody who's just sort of he gets to be in the middle of stuff too but doesn't have the responsibility that the the, the top guys have or, or a war for something like that 
I'd be right. Deanna Troy for one night, but that's another story, and <laughs> I get that all on video. Now, something I was reading today said that originally in one of the early drafts of this episode, it was supposed to be him and her mm -hmm. that got trapped down on the planet. Yes, I hear and she was a little upset about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, she she once again really doesn't have shit to do in this episode. Well, they took it. I heard they I heard basically that was the original story. Then they said nah, and then they took her and then they had her down to one line in this episode, and then that line ended up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> so I think basically I remember sort of noting in my head, the only time I really noticed her there was one scene where she got up out of her chair, and walked away. I was like, oh, there's Deanna. <laughs> Did she not have a line? Because I thought she had a line at one point where uh, where, Tom, where Picard asked her her impression of Tomalog, and she said something. Oh, you're right. Once again, it's obvious. Uh, something like, well, you know, he's he hostile. doesn't really. Yeah, he's, he's very hostile or something. And I'm thinking, really? Yeah. Honestly. I mean, hostility on. behind that smile is what she said. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, because it was the most forced smile you've ever seen on some idiot with a bowl haircut. I wish they had used him more. He does come back a few more times. Hey, you know, before we start talking about it, we should tell him what we're talking about. Oh, this is true. Yes, you're absolutely right. I totally forgot. Season 3 of The Next Generation, The Enemy. Next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation... Jordy is missing in action on a deadly planet. Jordy! Mr. Wolf, launch the probe. A violent storm blocks the crew's desperate search to find him. Will he survive? I can't see! And his fate lies with the enemy. You are my prisoner! On Star Trek, The Next Generation. The Enemy, and this one originally aired... Um, the week of November 6, 1989. Man, that seems like a hell of a long time ago. That's because it was. It's because it was a hell of a long time ago. All right, so, so the synopsis on this one from the Nitpicker's Guide for Next Generation Trekkers reads this way. An away team of Riker, Worf, and LaForge beam down to the Galadorn, uh, Galorndon, the Galorndon down to the planet. An inhospitable planet buffeted by severe electromagnetic storms. The Enterprise buffeted. <laughs> received an unknown distress call from the planet and is investigating. LaForge locates a, a crashed Romulan craft. The away team spreads out to search for survivors. Always a mistake. Riker and Worf return a few minutes later with a wounded Romulan. LaForge, however, is missing. The storm intensifies and they must beam back without him. Aww. The storm on the core uh, limits the use of the Enterprise's sensors, but Wesley suggests they shoot down a neutrino. Why is this kid the only one that can ever come up with anything? Ugh. Because he's good at video games, man. That's what gives him the edge. Whatever. The neutrinos can easily pass through the storm. When LaForge finds the beacon, he can alter its pulse rate. This will help the Enterprise locate him. This reads like like it's written for first graders. Unfortunately, it should just be the nose picker's guide to start. <laughs> Unfortunately, just before LaForge reaches the beacon, another Romulan attacks him. That's behind. right. It was written by LeVar Burton. 
<laughs> As the magnetic fields of the planet affect both LaForge and the Romulan, LaForge loses his vision, while the Romulan's legs turn numb. Turn the page, children. With no other choice, they decide to work together to find the beacon. Meanwhile, a Romulan warship confronts the Enterprise and demands the return of the other Romulan soldier. Picard reluctantly, uh, reluctantly advises the commander that the man is dead. <laughs> Sorry, we killed him. Blip. Our bad. Sorry. Uh, the commander readies his ship for war. At that moment, LaForge modifies the beam. Picard beams both LaForge and the Romulan to the bridge. He placates the Romulan commander by returning LaForge's friend. Friend. I, you know, I'll tell you, I think that's one of the big missed opportunities in Next Gen is watching this episode again. It occurred to me that they never follow up on that. I think that would have been an interesting idea to follow up, even if it was just a mention in some later episode. They could have got him on the crew as the pussified Romulan. Yeah, could have totally worked. Well, I another thing. I've seriously, noticed... though, I mean, I, I think that would have been really neat to, to even if it was like, a, like I say, just a passing mention at some point that Jordy and this guy had had kept in touch. You know that they kept the the lines of communication open Is over that the possible? years. And, yeah, I don't. Why not? We saw that happen with uh, what's his name with uh, Spock and. Um, Christ, I'm, I can't remember his name. All right, remember the guy that yeah, narrated... Yeah, that might have been through some diplomatic, you know... Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah, because... Yeah, where this is just like, this would be like having a pen pal in North Korea or something like that, you know? I don't know if you can do listeners that. listeners in North Korea? I don't... You know what? We uh, when, when we were on Libsyn and we were able to see... There were zero. There were downloads to South Korea, but none to North Korea. I don't know if they have internet going in or out of North Korea. I, I don't want to hear excuses. I want North Korea <laughs> listening. If they're listening, uh, I'll just put it this way: if they're listening, somebody probably has to smuggle us in on a on a zip drive, you know, and and put it onto a computer. It's not. It's not getting downloaded from twotruefreaks.com or from Libsyn or anything like that. <laughs> but Jordy would be the kind of guy who could maybe rig up some sort of way to communicate with the guy. But that could also be that could also get send you it in to big, him by neutrino beam. Yeah, it could get you in big trouble though if you're communicating with Romulans. It'd be like, what's up with this? Oh, he's my friend. Oh, really? Yeah, really? What are you telling him? Well, when it the, when it really occurred to me was uh, I was thinking, you know, one of the parts of uh, the last movie, um, Nemesis, that I really liked a lot was at the end where the that female Romulan kind of came to the the aid of the Enterprise toward the end of the right, movie. Right. And I'm thinking she could have easily have been this guy coming in to say, "Hey, is my buddy Jordy still over there? I look at me, I'm a I'm a full commander now." Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah it'd be a little bit cheesy and it would be one of those like callbacks for like a handful of fans that would know who the hell the guy was. Yeah, it would I make just, more sense than the random female. Yeah. Romulan, and another thing I want to sort of mention that wasn't, and and I remember I don't remember if it was from the next gen or from the original series episode, but the the synopsis seemed to drop a major plot point. I think it was the next gen last time, and this time it's it's sort of glossed over. I don't even think it mentioned the whole thing with Worf refusing to give blood to the Romulan, and that's I, why he died. 
I liked that. I liked that a lot. Now, I was reading here, I'm getting this off of uh, Memory Alpha, but there was something I was reading here that I thought was very interesting. It says, the plot point of Worf letting, I don't know how you pronounce this, Patak, I guess is the guy's name, die by refusing uh, blood, met great resistance among some of the writing staff and Michael Dorn when it was suggested by Michael Piller. And it goes into a whole thing of uh, of Dorn's objection to the whole thing. I gotta say, I love that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really awesome. Now, there's the moment where where Riker kind of takes him to task about it a little bit, and he, he's kind of challenging his belief system. And he says, you know, do you hold all Romulans, you know, guilty of this crime? Because essentially, the the thing is, Worf won't do it. Because Romulans killed his parents. His parents, yeah. And so Riker just, you know, puts it to him. Well, you know, are you going to hold them all responsible for for this thing? You know, he's not. You know, this guy was not involved with that. And Worf was and like I pretty like much, that, yeah. <laughs> I like that Worf stands his ground, man. And he says, you know, yeah, I, I don't care. Screw him. Let him die. Yeah, he, he's he's a Romulan, and Romulans killed my parents. Good enough for me. Let the it, son of a bitch die. I gotta be honest. That's me, man. You know, well, I, I feel that way. I, you that, know, that would have been I, me. I think that's I think that's perfectly justified because I think that's a very warrior mentality. Oh, that's yeah. a very militaristic it, mentality. Well, the Klingons that, are hardcore, and you know, right. and I know Worf is was raised by human parents and is in Starfleet, but he's still a Klingon. So I I thought that made total sense, but I thought they totally tricked me on this one because there was a scene. Now here, here's where you and I are different. The see, if I were Worf, the scene where he actually is, where where they try, where, um, you know, Crusher decides she's gonna guilt him some more and say, "This guy's dying. I want you to take a look at him," you know, and so they t- and Worf goes over and the and you know saying, "I'm the only one who can save your life," and he's like, "I'd rather die than have your filth, you know, right. running around in my b- veins." That's where I would have been like, and maybe it would have been an old, you know, don't throw me in that there briar patch moment. Right, right. I would have been like, I was thinking to myself, oh, Worf is going to give him his blood just to be like, hey, screw you, buddy. How do you feel being alive because of that filth, you know? I kind of thought of that, too, because I I honestly could not remember how this resolved in this episode. So I could have seen seen that as well. Mm -hmm. But the, the reason I really like this is... To me, it's just in an age that we seem like we're getting further and further away from that kind of thinking, you know, because when you're at war with somebody, you know, at least this is how we used to fight our wars, you know, you you dehumanized the the enemy, you know, you you, it was just the way right. it well, it was done. And, pretty and much, so, you just have now the Klingons and the Romulans are sort of still have that warlike mentality. Nobody right. else does. Nobody right. else does exactly. But I like that that he's holding on to that mm-hmm. mentality of you know, like I say, Romulans killed my parents. Guys, Romulan needs to die. Mm-hmm. Well, they did. You know? They they sort of had it. They sort of had it both ways in this, because and they had the the story with Jordy. And the the Romulan on the planet, where they actually had to cooperate to, you know, to save each other, you know, to save their lives, to survive. Mm-hmm. Which, which is really funny because the name of this episode is "The Enemy," 
Mm-hmm. It reminds me a lot of. Did you ever see the movie Enemy Mine? No, but I, I yeah, I know exactly what it's you're talking very about. Very similar story, where you know two fighter pilots are fighting with each other and they crash land on a planet and they have to, um, you know, they have to cooperate in order to survive. And, well, that same story has been been done so many sure. times. I, I know just in the comics, it's been done a good number of times. I think the first time I ever saw the amazing two-headed transplant with Rosie Greer. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think the first time I ever saw this particular story was uh, there was an issue of uh, the old Planet of the Apes magazine that Marvel used to put out, and there was a story where there was a this big war between the apes and the humans. And at the end of it, there was a, a human that was left with, um, he couldn't walk, he'd been paralyzed, and there was an ape who had lost the use of his arms. And so they basically... Master Blaster? They be- Well, they became like what you were just talking about, like, like yeah. the amazing two-headed man. It's like the, they found this, I don't know what it was supposed to be, like medical tape or something, and basically the man rode on the shoulders of the ape and acted to give him as arms, his arms. And acted as his arms, and the ape acted as his feet, and they made their way back to wherever it was that they needed to go. But the cool thing about that story is at the end of it, by the time they get to the end of their journey, both of them had healed up, and then it becomes a moment of, all right, are they now friends because they've gone through hell together, or are they still enemies that will fight to the death? And I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it's a damn good story. And I'll, I just, I never forgot that particular iteration because every time after that, that I've seen something like this episode or Enemy Mine or something, I always am taken back to that because to me, that was the original iteration of that mm-hmm. story. And I know it's not because it goes back even further than that, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's just one of those iconic type of stories that has been told time and time again. Yeah, and we, we learn a lesson with Jordy's story on the planet, but not with Worf. <laughs> the only well, see, person the thing that I... a lesson in that one is uh, is a Romulan, which is if you're going to croak, better croak around somebody who has your right ri- ri- ribosome or whatever that, that is <laughs> Klingon. Well, see, I think by having Worf stand his ground the way he does in this and conversely having... LaForge and this Romulan forge a friendship while down on the planet that seemingly is going to last longer than just the instant that they're in danger together. I think that creates a nice little dichotomy, you know, that you're seeing kind of both sides. So if, if Worf had come around, I don't know that it would be as powerful an episode. Well, you know I, what I mean? That everybody does the right thing. Everybody becomes friends. Well, that's no. what I like. It wasn't, it wasn't formula. And I liked how it went like everybody, nobody was going to tell him what to do but they all tried to guilt him into it until nobody had any effect till Picard finally called him in and Worf is expecting him to order him to do it and will do it if he orders him to do it but Picard won't order him to do it and uh, so and you know Picard's doing that as a, a sort of you know futuristic little you know he figures that will pu- push Worf's conscience, but he doesn't realize he's dealing with a Klingon conscience, you know, or or whatever. He and he and Number One both seem very confident that their little guilt trip, while saying, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but this is what I would do, 
you know, you, you, you got to make the right choice, you know, and, and sending him off. But I like when he tells Picard, nope, sorry, no dice. Picard calls off all the dogs. I like that he, you know, says, don't try to right. persuade him either way. You know, he's made his decision. So yeah, like let, it, let it sit where it, where it sits. And, and the guy dies as a consequence of it. If he would have lived in the first place, it could. Uh, what would have been even more disappointing is if Worf gave him the transfusion and then he died. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been even more like just, or killed or, himself, or killed himself. That would have been more dramatic. Yeah. But you know they had, they had a good. There was a good amount of stuff going on in this episode. So, you know they they, they didn't need any more, any more storyline in this. Um. I love this. At, at the beginning, you literally have Riker yelling at Picard for being such a wimp. And oh yeah, he does get up all, all up in his face. He yells at him. He yells at him. And right, but Picard and I don't know if this is Picard actually growing a pair, or if it's the the actual the intellectual side of Picard going, well, I'm dealing with Romulans. And they're a warlike, aggressive. So I have to be aggressive. And, and but, man, he he's on that guy's ass, man. He doesn't let him have the the um high ground at any point. Picard is just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, and keeps the guy on the defensive at all times. I like that. You don't see that, you know. This is like this is kind of a new side of him that we're seeing. He's he's slowly becoming that uh, that Picard that I like. Slowly, it's it's taking <laughs> some time, but he's getting there. But no, I, I really do dig this episode. I, I think this is a really solid one. And uh, you know what? I got the book right here in front of me. Let me see if this is the one. There was one of them I remember looking at. Yeah, this is it. In the Nitpicker's Guide for Next Generation Trekkers, this is the only episode that initially, in this volume, stumped the author, uh, Phil Ferrand. He actually could not find any nitpicks with it. So, of course, Ooh. collective fandom <laughs> took that as a the, challenge. Yes. <laughs> so, in the next volume, I, I believe there are several nitpicks uh, in the following volume. You know, pointed out about this I'd, episode. But I was just always thought that was cool. That I'd be interesting to see what they were because they're probably really nitty. Ah, uh, let's see. I got it right here. Oh, okay. uh, I can look that up real quick. I bet you they are too. They're probably super, super nitpicky. But uh, I just thought that that was really cool. That you know. He was willing to admit, hey, you know, solid Stop. episode. I, I can't find anything wrong with it. That is if I can find it in the book. Let's see. This is a third season, right? Yes. Third season, The Enemy. All right. Let's see. We've got plot oversights. It says the away team beams down and finds a destroyed Romulan vessel. Obviously, one or more Romulans survived the crash. Then Riker orders the away team to split up. Does this make sense? If there are Romulans running around on the planet, wouldn't you want to stay together? That's eh, a kind of nit. Well, it is a nitpicker's guide, I guess. Yes, so. yes. That's what uh, I'd say. To... You know, there's a, there's a, there's a ton of them here. Let me see if I can find one that actually seems like legitimate. <laughs> um, 
I'm sure they're all legitimate. But Both the Forge and Bakra make the most amazing recovery. Moments before they leave the planet, Bakra can't walk and the Forge can't see. The magnetic fields have been uh, breaking down their uh, synaptic pathways, yet once they appear on the Enterprise, they perk right up. That's true. <laughs> that is actually true. Yeah, I remember. You might. Yeah, you might, I guess. But I remember thinking at the end of the episode that, yeah, Bakra doesn't look so bad for a guy that couldn't walk unaided there, uh, you know, five minutes ago. Bakra. Uh, Bakra has one of the worst haircuts, man. Just, <laughs> this is a good even. one. This one, okay, this one's legit. This one's actually a really good one. So I like the moment where where you're not sure what Jordy's doing. He's he's looking with his visor, which, by the way, another uh, first-person perspective shot of Jordy's visor. I always thought that was mm-hmm. really cool, and I thought they had dropped that by now, so it's, it was neat to see that. Because one of the things that's always annoyed the shit out of me in Generations is when Lursa and Bator are watching what Jordy's seeing when they send him back to the Enterprise right, so that right. they can get the code. And it looks like watching like a video camera. We we have learned by now that that is not how LaForge sees things. He sees things in you know thermographic vision or whatever the hell is you know that he's seeing things. But anyway. We see him in this episode, and he's doing kind of the Kirk thing, where he's gathering up all the, all the pieces. But instead of making a bazooka, he makes those spikes to try to climb up the wall. Terminator spikes, yeah. Here's a good catch. Never even thought of this. Why didn't LaForge use his phaser to cut himself handholds in the rock face? Hey, that would have helped. That is a good catch. I it never even occurred to me, but yep, there you go. Uh, can LaForge's visor see around corners or through walls? He sees the neutrino beam, then he helps Bakra uh, back way into a cave and he can still see the beam. <laughs> you know, I've got one that I uh, I spotted, but I don't I don't know if it's in here or not. So, okay, so LaForge, as I said, we, we get that first person perspective of LaForge using his, his visor, right? And he's looking at that neutrino thing. And you, you can see how his visor, you can kind of get a feel for how it works, right? Mm-hmm. So he's blind, but he can see everything around him. Like light and day don't mean anything to him. So he sees that beam and he starts walking towards it. He goes past this like dark alcove type of thing. And then that's when Bakra comes out and clubs him in the back of the head. Why the hell didn't he see Bakra? He exactly. walked right past him. Just because it's dark to us, that doesn't mean shit to LaForge because that's not how his vision works. So that's that's my nitpick. I have no idea if it's in there or not, but I thought of that that's while I was one, watching yeah. the episode. I mean, you know, that, that's one of those things, though, that... You can blame it all on the distortion in the atmosphere or whatever. Whatever. But, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, they, if they thought of every little thing like that, you know, these episodes would take them years to write, and you know they're they're <laughs> yes. pumping them out week after week. Yeah. You, know? So, you know, you're gonna find flaws. They were never meant to be. Yep. And then people have Mike years Blake. and years to just go over them with a fine tooth comb. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, here we are, what, 24 years later, you know, still breaking these things down. They were yeah. never meant to be subjected to that kind of scrutiny. You know, not at all. 
I'm trying to think what else I got on this one. I think that's essentially it. I was about all I got. Disappointed to find out. I went to. There's another great website out there. You know, Memory Alpha is uh, the Star Trek wiki, and it's yeah. a really good resource. I, I really enjoy this site. But there's another site. It's a companion site to this one called Memory Beta. That one is a non-canonical Star Trek wiki. In, in other words, stories like from the comics, from the books, you know, from anything that's not canon, you know, from the right. TV shows. So I went in there and looked up Bakra, thinking by now, with all of the Trek books and comics and everything else that's out there, Bakra had to have made some other appearance somewhere. And I was greatly disappointed to find out, nope, that's pretty much it. Why the hell didn't somebody pick that up as an idea? I think that would have been neat to some, like I say, even if it was just a, a simple throwaway line that that LaForge had, had kept in contact, or or maybe you know the the Enterprise finds itself nose to nose with another warbird at some time, and it's Bakra to the rescue because hey, my buddy Jordy's on that ship, yeah, or maybe something. there's a Scott Gardner fanfic in the woods. <laughs> yeah, there. right. No, I don't think so. I just thought that was cool. I, I liked his character. I thought he was. I thought he was an interesting guy. But that was about all I got on this one. Uh, I, I really this haircut I, reminded me of Chuck Champagne, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it did. But I think that's about all I really got. Uh, on I just the had episode. to throw that reference that maybe two people are going to get that uh, listen to us. <laughs> Well, you want to take a little break and then come back with the comic book? Yes! Throughout its history, people have found this place disquieting. Strange and unexplained phenomena run rampant, so much so that it's been called the city that lives by night. And the city that lives by night needs a darker form of protector. Black Talon. Please don't kill me! You tell them all, Nocturne is the Talon's hunting ground. Your kind had best look elsewhere for prey. Nightbreaker. What was this? Some sort of joke? No. Gloria, this sounds crazy, I know, but she did shoot me. Something happened. I'm still not sure what, but people don't recognize unless I truly concentrate on their wanting to see me. It's like I'm invisible. Fairyman. The ghosts you refer to have done more for me than you two have. They've given me my sight back. <laughs> They've given me better than my sight back. Dreamcatcher. Witches, warlocks, mages, magicians, shamans. Call us what you like. It's all the same. We've helped when we can. Eluded those too ignorant to understand that magic isn't evil. And it's made us sensitive to others who have magic running in their veins. A quartet of heroes standing together must face a new menace. This can be painless, you know. You ain't putting the fronters on me, Slag. Just take your shot, yeah? I was hoping you'd say that. Who is going to use the roughest elements of the city? You that rose red bitch? That's right. I'm not even mad at you for adding the bitch part. Because I am. And I know you guys are some of the nastiest, toughest, roughest, meanest bastards in this town. Am I right? Yeah! yeah! Good. Because I have need of you. To send this city. Come on! This end tonight. Down New Roads to Hell. New Roads to Hell, the first Shadow Legion adventure by Thomas DJ. A new novel coming soon from Airship 27. For more information, including character sketches and behind the scenes information, 
visit the Nocturne Travel Agency at welcometonocturne.blogspot.com and airship27.com. And we're back. Hey. All right. Now, <laughs> whoa, that was fast. <laughs> now we are going to get into the comic book segment of the show. And Chris is here. We snubbies. Hello. This is DC Star Trek The Next Generation. And we are up to big number four. Uh, this is from January of 1990. Oh, my God. Almost double the price of most of the comics we cover. $1.50. <laughs> Getting up there in price. Um, the cover, as far as I could determine by the writing on it, was by J.K. Moore. And has an evil Doc Op alien <laughs> looking thing attacking... <laughs> Lieutenant McRib and Worf. Yep. So, uh, so this one's uh, Michael Jan Friedman was the writer. Um, Pablo Marcos is the art. Bob Pinana, maybe is pronounced the letter. Juliana Ferreter, the colorist, and Robert Greenberger, the editor. And this one is called the Hero Syndrome. Oh no, the Hero Factor. One of those. <laughs> the Immunity Factor. So the, uh, the Enterprise is in pursuit of a ship that seemed abandoned, but it's captured an away team. The ship is sending the crew as fodder for dissection on a remote world. The away team crew is in suspended animation, except for Worf and McRib, who got separated from the rest of them. They fight a giant mechanical op- octopus, but Worf defeats it with, while uh, McRib once again whines about what a useless coward he is. Uh, they find the alien bridge, but decide that they don't want to mess with anything and head for engineering to take out the engines. But then they're attacked by another giant mechanical praying mantis. Giant praying mantis, I should add, not a regular sized praying mantis. Um, Worf ends up short circuiting it by sticking a, a piece of equipment into its brain, but is injured in the process and is basically paralyzed on the floor. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, McRib's wife faints, and the dilithium crystals screw the pooch, bringing the Enterprise to a screeching halt. But, on the alien ship, McRib has an idea. He reactivates the praying mantis by pulling the piece of debris out of its brain, and then he tricks it into smashing the ship's warp core. McRib is finally a hero! Then McRib blows himself. The end. (laughs) <laughs> and I think you, you know what that, I'm talking about. You caught that too. Yes, yes, I, I did. There's you know a I'm great about, but dialogue. We'll have to uh, talk about the typo in, <laughs> in this issue. Well, At least I th- if it's not a typo, it's some of the weirdest writing I've ever seen. This is supposed to be Picard, I think. Yeah, it is. It's the captain's log. He says, had it not been for the advanced state of tax and technology and the safeguards built into the ship's propulsion system, McRib would have no doubt have blown himself in the process. <laughs> Does it sound so bad? <laughs> right? Ron Jeremy's still with us. <laughs> oh, man. Proof, I love typos. Proofreaders, where are they? <laughs> Maybe the they were laughing their asses off. Is where they who were. was the editor on? Bob Greenberger. Greenberg. Shame on you, sir. Shame on you. No, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for taking a long lunch that 
that month because we at least got a laugh out of it. <laughs> oh my god, where the hell to start in this issue? Because it wasn't bad, but it's it's oh. not bad as as your my synopsis was very short because there's really not much happens. You know, it's it's a no. lot of uh, it's a lot of battle sequences. Yeah, with mechanical. What's funny is on the cover. What's attacking them looks pretty alien. It looks like an alien, like you can sort of see a body in the background, but it right. could be they could be you know it could be any kind of mechanical Japanese tentacle creature, but in the actual comic, it's an octopus. It's it, they fight an octopus and a praying mantis, two earth creatures. Earth creatures, yeah. And, had, and these guys are sort of like grabbing life forms from everywhere to dissect and study at their zoo, you know, they're going to come up with something better than an octopus. And, and it's very earth centric. It was, you know, they look cool, <laughs> but it doesn't make yeah. sense. You know, they, no. they should have made up some sort of space creature that maybe was kind of like an octopus or something. But yeah, that was my major complaint with this other than, it's like maybe we're done with McRib now, though. That he's finally oh, got his finally his like real boy now. It, it's no space reason for Jimmy him. Olsen essentially. Yeah, yeah he even looks like Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, I don't like him. Although that on page two, that very first panel, it looks like Worf racing the Flash. That's actually really, really interesting. Yeah, panel it does. Right there. But that next to the last panel at the bottom of page two, that's Worf sniffing a fart. I was right just going to say, that's Worf farted in a spacesuit. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, Klingon farts have got to be just, <laughs> just horrifying. <laughs> I, we've seen what they eat. It's just, it can't be pretty. On page five, Worf takes out the mechanical octopus the exact same way that Mr. Incredible takes out the Omnidroid. I thought that was kind of interesting. He, he tricks it into stabbing itself and taking out its own brain, essentially, which brain. is pretty cool. Brain. But, yeah, I mean, I could go crazy nitpicking and making fun of some of the art and some of the... The you know the anatomy of the characters is still really wonky from time to time. Picard still has Camino and neck syndrome. <laughs> oh my God! Here's one. Look at page eight, third yes. panel. LaForge looks like ET. <laughs> Does he not? His fingers not glowing, but it's ET wearing a visor. It's hysterical. Yeah, his neck is just way, way, way too long. Yeah, this guy does like to draw necks. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, Picard's ridiculous in the first two frames of this. He's just like, oh. I love where Worf takes out the uh, giant praying mantis essentially the same way that uh, he took out the octopus, except the second time he can't trick the creature into stabbing itself so he stabs the creature and that's when he gets zapped i, I actually thought that was very clever because we don't really see that sort of thing happen in the show you know where there's they do something like this it's smart it's a way to take out the threat but then you know they they pay a high price for it as yeah, well because damn near kills him yeah this is uh this would be beyond the budget of a uh, next generation episode oh, yeah yeah 
good-looking uh, creature, though. Yeah, it's a, a giant golden praying mantis. That two-page sequence with Data and McRib's wife is really kind of silly. The art's not bad, but the Data just... He's inconsistent, because one minute he's a walking encyclopedia of human knowledge, and then the next minute he's too naive to live, you know? he He's... Pinch hitter, Captain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought that was really strange that he didn't know what, what a pin, pinch hitter was, yet he was giving uh, Picard all kinds of information about baseball in that episode where they went to the holodeck. I think it was the one where they went there for... Was it Sherlock Holmes or Dixon Hill or something like that? Right, right. So, yeah, very inconsistent. Worf looks odd in this. He doesn't necessarily look wrong because he does look very Klingon, but he doesn't necessarily He's a look small. like Michael Dorn. Yeah, he is. He's a little yeah. more in proportion with... I mean, actually, Michael Dorn's a big guy, but right. it's not, you know like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. But yeah, he's kind of a little too proportioned like a human with a really big head. Right. This. Yep. Exactly. They could have used a little lesson from Carmine Infantino and buffed him up a little bit. But did you notice at the end of the letters column with the coming attractions what we got coming? Jordy LaForge might be getting lucky. He looks like he's going to get him some. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Maybe it might mm. just be a big tease and she'll end up being a robot or something. <laughs> she's almost... really a dude. Yeah. <laughs> she's a tranny. It's a space tranny. Poor poor Jordy. Now, in 1990, were there financial problems with DC? Because I oh, noticed... No. I noticed that, like, in this book, some of the ads are in black and white which is really weird for you know some of the pages of ads have have you noticed that you know now that you say that i i do notice it but i hadn't really thought much of it before but uh in color comics you very rarely would see a black and white ad you know maybe if it was just black right. text on a white background or something but you know, this is like real ads with photos in them and stuff. They're like black and white pictures, versions of color pictures. There's one from probably, the ad. It probably costs more to print the ad in color, though. Oh, so sure. It may not necessarily have been DC having money problems, but whoever the advertiser was only wanted to spend so much money. Well, that's so what I'm saying, though. For black and white. And it's like. You know, it's like news from Questar Science Fiction Publishing. It's like, who the hell are they? You know, so, <laughs> so it's like the the fact that they were selling cheap ads in there doesn't seem good. You know what I mean? You would seem like you would want ads that were like Hostess, you know, that gets a color ad and commissions a, a cartoon and stuff like that, you know? Well, you have this as the actual comic, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you why they were not hurting in 1990. Look at the back cover. Oh, yeah. Movie of the Decade just came out on video cassette. This okay. is an ad for uh, Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman from 1989. Now, I was actually working in video sales when this movie came out. Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal today. Right. When you go to your wa local Walmart and 
you know, you can buy any movie you want. You can go for, to Seven you know, Eleven and get them at the cashier now. Yeah, exactly. But I tell you what, back at this time, 1989, 1990, video sales was in its infancy, and most movies that you would go and rent from like Blockbuster or whatever, they would come out. And when they were initially released, they would cost around a hundred bucks. Yeah, Literally, video bucks, yeah. would be yeah, right around a hundred dollars. And people just didn't understand why the hell is it so expensive? And there was not much of a back catalog of movies yet. They were you know, movies were still you know coming out of the vault and still coming out on video and that sort of thing. I mean, truly, the industry, the movie industry on videotape was in its infancy that you know there was no dvds yet or anything this was strictly vhs video and maybe a little bit of beta still hanging on for dear life at the very end there maybe yeah but when batman came out on vhs completely changed the market and the way movies were marketed because batman was the first huge release that came straight out at um trying to remember what they called the price point but it wasn't the hundred dollar mark it came straight out at a uh, damn i can't i can't believe i've forgotten the term but it basically at a consumer price right so like 20 bucks or something 20 bucks that, and i that. remember when it came out i was working at um a place called saturday matinee back mm-hmm. then and saturday matinee was essentially was a ripoff of the format that their competitor had which was a place called suncoast motion picture company and i kind of like saturday matinee a little bit better because they really went with more of the old matinee feel so it was more you know it's kind of modeled after old-timey movie theaters i loved working there it was a really neat place to work when batman came out the suggested retail price i do believe was i think it was 1995 but we had it doorbuster was uh 14.95 so it's 15 bucks and up until that time, I had never seen that many videotapes of one title in one place ever. And that wouldn't be broken for years until Jurassic Park came out. When Jurassic Park came out, it was unreal the number of videotapes that we got for that movie because I mean, it was just the biggest thing ever to come out on videotape. But when Batman came out, it was huge. I mean, we had giant dumpsters full of them and you know those big... Uh, uh, you know, like dump bins and things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, it was mad. And we could not keep the damn thing in stock. It just sold like gangbusters. And because it came straight out at that sell through price, it just, it really did change the market because when other movies, future movies, future blockbusters would come out on, on VHS, if they didn't follow Batman's model, it could kill that movie. I mean, right. it may have done really well at the theater, but if they didn't come straight out at a sell-through price when it when it hit video, then it would piss consumers off, and they would generally lose interest. So by the time the price did come down to a consumer price, they'd already moved on to whatever the next thing was. And so Batman really changed the face of video sales, and that's why today, after a few months after your movie comes out at the, the theater... There it is on, you know, DVD for, you know, 15 bucks at Walmart or whatever. And Mm -hmm. you can thank Batman for that. That's what changed the whole face of that industry. And it it was it was a really cool time to have lived in, you know, video sales and worked in video sales because it was exciting to see movies come along. Because I remember right after Batman, 
the next big one was, I believe, was Hunt for Red October. And Hunt for Red October did not follow that formula. And it came out at 100 bucks. And we had a few nuts that bought it at that price. But for the most part, people would come in and be like, hey, can I get a copy of your Hunt for Red? Well, I'm sorry, you know, we can order it for you, but it's $100. And they'd be like, what? Screw that. And they had no interest, you know. And so by the time it did come out at that price, it sold decently but not like Batman had done. Mm-hmm. And it had potential to do that, you know, not probably not near as well as Batman, but it had potential to do really, really well. And it just didn't because they, they were following the old formula rather than following Batman. And I think Paramount quickly learned their lesson. And after that, they started following through with, okay, you know, things would come out of the sell-through. And it was not long because I was out of video sales within a couple years i moved on to other things but uh i'm thinking by about 90 i want to say 90 late 91 or mid 92 something like that pretty much the old system was gone by that right they they couldn't do that anymore everything came out sell through which was just awesome but uh yeah, it was, it was just neat. It's neat thinking back on that after all these years. I hadn't really thought about that in a long time, but I saw this ad, and this ad is specifically for the video cassette, which I thought was cool because you know most of the ads you see with this logo and this quote, you know, movie of the decade is pronounced by, what's his name, Eric Preminger of uh, KGO TV San Francisco. Most of these ads are for the movie. This is specific, you know, for the theatrical release, I mean. This is specifically for the video cassette. And that just took me back. I was like, damn, do I remember that. That was, it was exciting times. I mean, you know, despite how you may have felt about the movie, it was just exciting times to live through. And I remember uh, when um, Batman Returns came out a couple years later, man, they had such high hopes for that. And they sent us, like, zillions of copies of that thing and it did well but it wouldn't be until Jurassic Park that you would really see it topped it with uh, with videotape because Jurassic Park was just it was insane man yeah it was absolutely you you if you took those meanwhile bricks, the blockbuster in my town is packing it they're selling the stuff off the walls now oh yeah yeah sad yeah. You're going for 25 bucks, you can get the stars on the wall with the pictures of like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jackie Chan on them and stuff. Ooh, you should go look and see if they got a Chris Reeve because I know they the, they, they did. It went oh real went. fast. Yeah, wow, that's that's cool. Yeah, it makes me kind of sad because uh, I mean I met my wife working at a blockbuster because my my first job when I moved to Georgia. Uh, my very first day in town, I got a job. It was uh, was working at the local Blockbuster, and uh, and I met my wife there a few days later. Blockbuster sort of did it to themselves. Oh yeah, I, I have no, I mean, it makes me sad in that like, yeah. oh, you know, you know, like when they tear down the old movie Memories, house. Memories, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly that kind of way. But at the same time, oh, pff, believe me, I have no great love for Blockbuster because I, I tell you. Man, we are so off on a tangent, but I just got to tell this story because I've been itching to tell it for a while. Uh-oh. Here's the, here's the thing that soured me on Blockbuster. So I had a buddy of mine that uh, was a store manager for Blockbuster. And he got we, – we came into this company together, and, uh, and I was an assistant manager at the location I was at. And he came in for a while, and then eventually he moved to another store and became manager or 
manager or assistant manager, I forget, but at a different location. And it got back to me at some point through the grapevine that the company had canned him. And, I, you know, I was trying to ask around to find out what had happened. And it turned out the story was that uh, a customer came to the store late one night after closing, you know, after they'd already locked the front door and everything and they were, you know, doing their cash out and everything. And a customer came to the store and wanted to be let inside. And my buddy, you know, he made the right call and he said, no, no, I'm sorry, we're closed. And, uh, the guy, you know, that's how robberies happen. Yeah, exactly. The guy raised hell and everything else. and, And he would not give, and he would not let the guy into the store. So the guy ended up calling, uh, the, they, all the blockbusters back then used to have a, uh, the number clearly posted like for the, um, uh, like the district manager's number. So you could call him directly. And this guy called and complained and raised holy hell, and the company let him go because he would not let a cash-in-hand customer into the store after store hours. I was livid. Anyway, it was not very long after that that there was a famous case. I think this happened in Texas, but I could be wrong. It was somewhere out west where some people showed up after a store closing and begged and cajoled and everything else to be let into the store after closing and they were let into the store and they were immediately marched to the back of the you know into the manager's office uh-huh. uh, and made to get the money out of the safe or I don't even think they had it in the safe yet because they were doing their bank out went back there got the money and shot everybody execution style in the store Jesus killed, killed everybody and Jesus company and I saw this with my own eyes the company issued a statement later on basically say basically the gist of it was you know yeah sure this is a tragedy we feel so sorry you know whatever but you know these dumbasses did it to themselves because they let guests into the store after store closed don't we all know that that's a really bad policy and we oh. shouldn't be doing that and I was like you have got you have got to be Friggin' kidding me about this? Are you? And I mean, because they had just fired a friend of mine for doing that exact same thing, and now they were flip flopping. And these people that had died for no good reason other than the fact that they feared for their jobs were now being sold down river in this They're story. Crappy and it paying just jobs. pissed me off so bad. It was not long after that that I was just like, you know what, I think I'm done with this company. And I yeah. never forgot and I never forgot or forgave that because I For think the amount of just, money that they pay people Oh to yeah pull stuff and to pull stuff like that, it's crazy. It was it was just so insulting, you know? I mean just disgraceful to these people that were now dead to make it essentially, well, you know, it was their own stupid fault. What a horrible, horrible way to treat a human being, you know? And like I said, just, I never forgot it. And, uh, you know, so I had that, that, that twinge of nostalgia when I heard, yeah, they're finally folding, but at the same rate, I'm like, well, you know, no great loss because what a rotten way to treat people. Just really, you know, it's always stuck in my craw, but Anyway, now that I've completely brought the show down. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you know. You and your craw, man. Me and my craw. (laughs) Craw! 
That should be your what? super villain name, Craw. Craw. <laughs> you can get those little, those little alien guys from Toy Story to go the Craw. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Craw, and I've got something stuck in me. Actually, that sounds like a visit to the emergency room. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't really have much else. On this uh, I, don't, I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. That's right. Well, these are all. I mean, these are all original to me because I have not read any me of this. Stories, you know, this series. So so far, every one of them has been a been a new discovery. Uh, a couple of them have been this. This one wasn't as next generation y feeling as some of the first three. Right. But uh, or or, or maybe the first two. I don't know. We'll see. Next month it's uh, old school Star Trek in the comics. That's right. In yeah. the comic. So. I did like seeing Pulaski right at the very end of the issue. This may be one of the last times yeah. we're going to see her because I know she wasn't in it for very long at the beginning. I remember seeing that and going, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Not for long. <laughs> Not for long. <laughs> You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs> Visit our brand new website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Join our forum at ForumForGeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find 2TrueFreaks on Facebook. Just search for 2TrueFreaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook, too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two, Two True, True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft. 
which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan, on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this. 